0: This is 35 West, a podcast about politics and policy of the 35 countries in the Western Hemisphere. I'm Richard Miles, Deputy Director of the Americas Program and Director of the US Mexico Futures Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies.
1: Was how professional the Mexican But government. are we ready? Long-term I don't reform think. trends in Argentina. Right. And that's what happened in the NAFTA negotiations.
0: In this podcast series, we'll discuss some of the biggest issues affecting countries in our own backyard. Immigrants are waiting for legal entry after Mexico decided to fast track humanitarian visas. Nearly 8,000 people have applied, and so far, more than 500 visas have been issued. What if they build a wall and nobody came? We're not quite there yet, but we have seen significantly lower numbers of migrants trying to enter the United States across the southern border. Here to help us understand what is going on is Andrew Seeley, president of the Migration Policy Institute here in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Andrew.
1: Thank you, Richard. Great to be back on 35 West.
0: So this is your third time back on the show. So I think you're in the running with Chris Sands to be the most frequent visitor on 35 West. That's good company to be in. That's right. That's what I thought. So um, we had you on back in October to talk about The Last Caravan, back in June to talk about your new book, Vanishing Frontiers. How is the book going, by the way?
1: It's going very well. I'm actually be in Chicago and Nashville next week talking about it. So it uh, seems to be getting out, and it's a good book of stories about the relationship.
0: And by now, you're quite wealthy, Andrew. You can basically quit your that's right pretty soon right I'm, I, I, but my, I keep my, expecting the notice that you're done
1: my, my advice to aspiring authors is don't quit your day job <laughs> okay. do it for fun right. not, so not for, a for a while any longer, other reason you'll be yes. an mpi okay yes
0: all right so uh let's start by talking about turns out there are more caravans um, en route to the united states and forming in honduras and then on the border of uh, mexico um, so according to reports as of today um, we've got at least three groups sort of uh, either coming or on their way. group of about 1,000 or so somewhere in Oaxaca uh, in southern Mexico. We've got another group of uh, over 5,000 on the Guatemalan-Mexican border and apparently another group uh, forming in Honduras, some you know, a few hundred. And this is all according to press reports and social media. Um, what's going on, Andrew? What, why are these groups coming? Uh, well, we know why they're coming, but why do they keep coming uh, knowing by now surely that the Trump administration has tightened up uh, on asylum uh, requests or granting asylum and a whole host of other measures? What what is driving the continued caravans to the United States?
1: You know, I, I think one answer is obviously things are bad where they're coming from um, and they have hope that things will be better where they're going. Right. I mean, the, the same reason people. People migrate around the world. You know, in this case, fleeing conditions that are often unsustainable in people's lives, um, but also hoping that there's a real opportunity north of the border. And I think, you know, a few months ago, a lot of us were undecided about whether the caravans would continue. It was obvious that the last big caravan couldn't make it into the United States. You know, a caravan was a great way of getting through Mexico. It's a lousy way to get into the United States because you really put a target on your back. As you know, when you get to a city like Tijuana, you know they're waiting for you on the other side of the border. But, you know, the, it is a great way to get through Mexico. And for, for people that have ever had an ambition to head north, um, it lowers the cost. You don't have to pay a smuggler. You can, you know, band up with other people headed the same direction, some of whom know more than you do about where you're going. Um, it's cheap. It's safety in numbers. Um, and you'll figure it out as you get to the border. Or maybe you have a relative that's going to, you know, tell you where to get you go once you get to the border. And then just to throw a little more, you know, um, you know, kindling on the fire. The Mexican government has, in the past month, as near as we can tell, been giving humanitarian visas to anyone that's showing up at the border, trying to forestall these caravans from, they, they decided they didn't want to stop them, you know, in the way they did last, tried last time under the last government. So they're basically giving people humanitarian visas, and that may be an incentive for people to do this too.
0: Let's talk about that, um, Andrew, the, the giving the visas. Now, uh, as far as we can tell, um, this appears to be sort of an ad hoc policy right or, or was it did a directive come down from Lopez Obrador administration saying this is what we're doing now or is this more of a sort of a an uh, you know by the fly reaction and then the second question is um, I, we we know what the Mexicans are trying to do and, and that is you know m- make this sort of more humane and more orderly and, and create a process and a record but as far as getting into the US this is actually not going to help them right because if i understand the asylum process correctly if the united states can say hey you're you're doing just fine in mexico because you've got a visa you can stay there you can work and you can travel so does does that undercut when they when if they make it to the u.s border doesn't undercut their claims to asylum when they apply
1: it doesn't necessarily undercut their asylum claim because they're not getting asylum, they're getting a temporary permit in Mexico. It could come up, I mean, on a case-by-case basis, but it probably won't for most people. uh, but it's, you know, it's a risk, obviously, for, for anyone that applies for it. Um, but I, you know, it's hard to tell if this is really a policy or, you know, as you say, it's on the fly. And I suspect it's more on the fly. I mean, Lopez Obrador said that they were going to be humane to Central Americans. Tona Guillen, who heads the immigration service, then announced that they would, with the caravan, give them humanitarian visas. And you know it's hard to tell if this is the new policy they'll let anyone in, you know, the humanitarian visa, or they're just trying to buy time while they figure out how they bolster their border security in a humane way. And I, I suspect it's the second one. I think they know they have to have control at the border, but they're not comfortable yet with the agents they have and the training they have and the protocols they have trying to stop people. So let's
0: put this in, in context uh, of the last, say, uh, 10 to 20 years in terms of migration to the United States and those trends. I mean, the, the caravans have gotten a lot of press. Uh, and, you know, as far as I can tell, if you add up all the numbers of the caravans starting you know, last year and then including the ones en route, you're probably talking in the neighborhood of you know, fifteen to 20,000, mostly Central Americans. Um, but that compares against historical trends that were much, much bigger than that. Um, but different in significant ways, right? I mean, it used to be mostly single Mexican males uh, coming in very large numbers around 1999, 2000, up through early 2000s, and that has shifted dramatically much more towards Central American families. So can you tell us, you know, what what other things have we noticed in the last 20 years in terms of specifically the US southern border what are what are we seeing different now than than say even 10 or 20 years ago
1: i mean that is, those are the biggest issues i mean this, it was mexican young mexican men trying to cross later there were some women and families but it was overwhelmingly young men going to work you know now it's central american families the majority of people caught in the past few months since september at least are either unaccompanied children or families Um, There is a large number of people applying for asylum, and many of them have good grounds for applying for asylum, whether they'll get it at the end or not. They pass credible fear um, in large numbers, about 80% do, because they they are fleeing from things. And so our conversations on the border keep going back to things we talked about 15 years ago you know walls and barriers and how we stop people and right now a lot of the questions are around the asylum system right i mean how do we make the asylum system work in a in a way that's effective and timely because you have you really have to sort out claims of people who say that they are you know, fleeing violence. And, and right now, our asylum system can't handle the number of claims it's getting. We're also dealing with people who can't be detained for very long because under law, under settlement agreements and court cases, we cannot detain people longer than um, a little over 20 days um, who are minors. And that includes families right now because the government said it won't separate families. Um, and that means that, you know, a large number of the people coming across aren't going to be detained for very long. So this is a whole different set of challenges that aren't going to be stopped by conventional measures. And we haven't even started to have that conversation. I mean, we're we're in the middle of this debate about the wall in the United States. But I get the sense that neither side, neither Democrats nor Republicans nor the White House nor Congress is really talking about some of these deeper issues about how we rethink both what is humane at the border, but what is also an effective deterrent.
0: So one of the other interesting trends that has, I think, also been obscured by a lot of the publicity about the caravans is, is a sort of reverse flow of, of migration, of migrants returning either voluntarily or involuntarily, in, as, as in being deported to Mexico in the Northern Triangle countries. And last week, I think it was, the Migration Policy Institute, your, your day job, um, released a very good report called Sustainable Reintegration, uh, Strategies to Support Migrants Returning to Mexico and Central America. And I learned a lot of things I didn't know. I, I didn't know the extent to which the governments are at least trying to sort of come up with a process to basically receive and reintegrate um, migrants who have lived in the United States and are now returning either either by their own choice or not by their own choice. Could you tell us what are sort of some of the key elements uh, or the key things that, that your researchers turned up um, as they were down there in this, uh, Mexico and the Northern Triangle countries?
1: Sure. I mean, this is a report that my colleagues, colleagues uh, Randy Caps and Ariel Ruiz, did um, with uh, Luis Argueta and, and uh, Rodrigo Dominguez. Um, two researchers who are actually on the ground uh, for us in Central America and Mexico. And I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, first of all, I mean, for Mexico, we've seen the drop in the number of Mexicans living in the United States from 11.7 million to 11.3 million from 2010 to 2017. That doesn't sound like a lot. but There are a lot of Mexicans that come every year, most of them legally these days. And so it's surprising that even with the number of Mexicans that come through family reunification, people getting green cards, people coming on temporary worker programs, uh, and a few people still coming illegally, though though a small number, the overall number of Mexicans is dropping. It tells you a lot of Mexicans are leaving the United States, most of them voluntary. Some are getting deported, and then a lot of Central Americans are getting deported or deciding to go home. you know, this is a huge issue actually for the United States government because the the U.S. government is interested in making sure that people who return actually have opportunities and don't come back illegally to the United States. But it's a huge issue for these countries, figuring out how to, to you know, integrate people that have been away for a while, make sure they get jobs, make sure they get in the educational system. And, you know, I think there's a, a real hope that they can tap a bit of the the human capital that comes with people that have lived abroad for a while, particularly people that have spent some time in the United States. Um, there's some research, not by us, by uh, by other colleagues, um, that have looked at University of North Carolina have looked at you know the intangible skills people pick up when they're living in the United States. Migrants, you know, not not just degrees, but you know, running your own small business, you know, learning how to navigate um, the legal system, learning how to pay taxes, things like that that people take back with them. Their norms and expectations change. So there's a lot of things countries are doing. I mean, one is just having a reception center. I know that sounds small, but El Salvador has done this. You've seen this in Mexico City, in Michoacán, in Mexico, where, where governments simply have a place where people can arrive when they come back and get pointed to different services, right? And do these
0: and, tend to be at airports, Andrew, or ports of entry? or where, where?
1: Yeah, at airports, ports of entry. Um, in the case of, of Morelia, it's, it's actually at a government building, but it's a small enough city, but it's one of the cities that has the largest migrant population in the United States. So, you know, it's a known place people can come to, but otherwise it tends to be at airports or in the border cities, um, you see know, in Tijuana, for example, it's right actually where people are deported to. And the idea is just giving people the menu of options. You know, How do you get a bank account? Um, where do you look for housing? How do you you know, enroll your child in school? What documents do you need? All these basic 101 things you need people to have. The Mexican government has tried giving people some subsidies to get started. They've tried actually helping people get bank accounts. Um, it doesn't always work as well as in practice as it does on paper, but these are the kind of things that are creative that, that are helpful for people as they're trying to get reintegrated back into their countries.
0: Andrew, of the ones who are returning voluntarily, either to Mexico or Central America, Is there a demographic profile that stands out? I mean, are these, for instance, are are they people who have spent their full adult life in the United States and they're going back to retire? Or are they ones who couldn't find a job or the young families? What, what does it look like um, of the returnees?
1: You have everything in this. I mean, you know, you have a lot of people who've been successful here, right? They're going back because they want to retire or they want to start a business, right? And being successful is a relative term, right? I mean, they feel they can go back having, you know, with some money in their pockets. They'd rather, they can't start a business in the US, but they can go and start a business in their hometown. Or they've been building a house for 30 years in their hometown and they want to retire. So, you get that segment of people who are going back with money in their pockets and real opportunities and often have been away a long time, so are facing a bit of culture shock when they go back. Um, And then you get a lot of people who just got to the U.S. and got deported, right? Um, and so they really haven't been away that long. And so they, they were uprooted from whatever their life was, and they've got to start all over again. But they've just been deported. And in between, you have a group of people who've been living in these states for a while and have uh, gotten deported, right? These are people who are, who are getting deported through interior deportations and really are disoriented because they didn't save up for this. They didn't plan for this. They They've often been deported alone, left family in the United States. Um, and it really is, is quite a shock. And they, they are probably the ones that have the hardest time because they neither are prepared for going back and at the same time they've been away for nor, you know, nor have they been integrated into the country that where they're being deported back to. They've been gone too long to, to really have feet on the ground there and a notion of what they're going to do, and they're not coming prepared.
0: So, Andrew, I think one of the uh, anecd- fascinating anecdotes I read in your book, In Vanishing Frontiers, I'm pretty sure I read it in your book, was about call centers, right? Yes. You told oh, a story yes. about sort of this latter yep. part that you just mentioned of Americans uh, relatively young, or sorry, Mexicans relatively young, live in the United States, are deported, they find themselves back in their hometown. Spanish sometimes ain't that good. That's right. Um, English is pretty good, and they go find a job at call centers. Are... are what, what sort of numbers are we talking about uh, in in Mexico, and um, could they do potentially other things besides working call centers, in which they're leveraging, like you said, the skills or talent set that they may have learned in the United States?
1: Yeah, they're are about. Last I checked, there are about eighty or ninety call centers in Mexico, which is a lot that really depend on this population. These are so, English call centers. English call centers, and they're often bilingual. One of the attractions of Mexico is that you know these kids that are coming back, often you know teenagers and and in their twenties. Um, are so they're not always getting in the thirties. Sometimes they're bilingual, so they speak American English and they speak Mexican Spanish. And for a lot of American companies, that's a bonanza, right? Because they want people who can answer the phone in American English and then turn around and also be able to answer callers in Spanish, actually, and then Mexican Spanish for a U.S. Latino population. Um, so this is why this is so popular. It's the same time zone, of course. Um, and, and it's fascinating hanging out with some of these people because they really are culturally American. I mean, they've grown up in the United States. They feel American. They speak English to each other. Um, I, I talk about someone in the book, actually, who is named Alejandra Pinzon, who, you know, I spend an afternoon with her and her husband and their kids. They speak English at home, right? I mean, that's their native language because both of them grew up in the United States, even though they were born in Mexico. So that is a, I mean, it, that is a huge number of people. Some of these people make it into other areas like tourism, tourism, you know, it, it can Cun, Acapulco, and me- increasingly in Mexico City, people are employing a lot of these young people in the tourism industry because they can speak English. Um, some multinational companies are actually, you know, hiring these people. I ended up so herself has actually moved now into a multinational corporation because she's both a talented manager and incredibly bilingual and bicultural. Um, and so there is a, a movement of these people into other areas of the economy as well. I mean, this is a real ca- human capital pool for, for countries like Mexico and, and Central America. The other thing is actually one of the groups that has the hardest time are children of Mexican migrants that move back. So those that are deported or those that choose to go back. The children, About five hundred, according to the Mexican census, there's about 550,000 um, minors in Mexico who were born in the United States people under the age of 18 born in the United States, that is a large number, half a million, more than half a million. The number may be much higher. The Mexican education system is probably about 2% made up of, of people born in the United States who are culturally American. 2% doesn't sound like a lot, but it really is. It, it means when you get to states like Michoacan and Guanajuato and Jalisco and certain areas that have high out migration, you could have 5 or 10 or 15% of the kids in a classroom being English speakers. Spanish is their second language. Culturally, they're American. They've been studying American history, not Mexican history, and suddenly they're thrown into a Mexican classroom. Um, Their situation is not unlike Mexican kids that move to the United States. De facto, you know, they may speak Spanish with their parents, but de facto, they're immigrants in Mexico. They're American immigrants in Mexico.
0: Andrew, do you think that the the effects of this sort of reverse migration uh, is kind of a one-off effect, or do you think this is going to have continuing... Sort of ramifications on, on you know, economic ties, political ties, cultural ties. Are, are we looking now at an era in which, as you, as you say, in the title of your book, "Vanishing Frontiers," where this dynamic sort of feeds into each other uh, across the border, or is this just sort of an artifact of a particular, you know, immigration policy that's in place for a decade, uh, and then? You know, those those children that you talked about are eventually gonna get reassimilated back into Mexico, right? And you'll have is the effect gone, or or will it continue?
1: Or they're held back to the United States, too. I mean, I think some of them may go, decide to go to the US at some point to work or study. I mean, it, it's hard to know. I think we're actually in front I think we're looking at a circular flow. You know, there, there was a time when the flow was one direction. It was from the United States to Mexico, from Mexico to the United States. You know, people get deported, but usually they get deported as they cross, not You know, if you made it into the States, you were okay. Um, the deportations may go down over time, may or may not. But I think we're gonna look at a constant circular flow. A lot of Mexicans move to the United States, they make the money you know, they make some money, they, they but they long to go back to Mexico. And I think you're gonna see people continuing to do that, along with more and more Americans choosing to live in Mexico. I mean, there there's this huge population also, several hundred thousand Americans who have no Mexican heritage who live in, in Mexico. Some are there with multinational companies, a lot are retirees. Some live in border areas and work in the United States and commute back and forth and just live better on the Mexican side. And some are, you know, increasingly among young people, actually, I found just lots and lots of people who were independent contractors. These were computer programmers. These were, you know, graphic designers, web designers, uh, writers, you know, people who work out of WeWork stations in Mexico, uh, you know, are out of their houses, and they just like living in Mexico. And, th- and there's an enormous network of people. I-, I can't tell you the number of people I've just met, you know, as I was mostly I was looking at the book, but also just through friends who are in that situation who have no real ties to Mexico other than at some point they went there and loved it and they can live better there than they can in the United States. It's a good place to be. If you're going to be an independent contractor and, and create your own business, it's a great place to be in a mobile world. I did actually for interview for the book, although I don't think I used him in the end, but I interviewed this great guy who had run a furniture business, lives in San Miguel de Allende and is now a very successful author. So his second career is he and his wife retired to Mexico, to San Miguel, have a beautiful house in a nice neighborhood. And you know, he sold the furniture business, and um, he spent the rest of his life being a writer, actually. He writes in English, mostly for the American community in Mexico, publishes a bit in the US as well, and you know he can do it. So fun fact, Andrew,
0: in the summer of 1972, I spent in San Miguel when my father was writing a book and my mother was teaching. So there you go. There just, you go. That's wonderful. We returned, though. Uh, <laughs> um, so, Andrew, it's hard to talk about immigration without talking about politics. So, and I know you love to talk about US domestic politics. So, so here, <laughs> here goes. If you look at the various polling among Americans and our attitudes towards immigration, seems to me it, it's kind of fluid and, in some ways, all over the map, depending on the question you ask. You know, I, I think I saw recently, I, I can't remember who did the poll, whether it was Pew. attitudes towards immigrants. And it was still pretty positive. Yeah, very. You know, like something 70-30, you know, immigrants basically have been good for the United States. But then if you ask other questions, you know, uh, about whether it's the wall or border security or do immigrants cause crime, you get these sort of very different numbers. Am am I wrong? Are Are they all sort of in one direction and politicians are misreading the mood or are the politicians reading it in some sense correctly in terms of hardening attitudes on immigration?
1: I think politicians on both sides are reading selectively and they're reading their base well, but they're not reading the American public well. Americans are overwhelmingly, when you look at the polls, I mean, they are overwhelmingly in favor of immigration. They think immigrants add to the American economy. They think immigration is part of what it is to be American, you know, it's just part of of the United States. They don't think immigrants commit crime. Most people don't, but Americans also want to know why we do immigration, what the rules are, and they want to know that the rules are being respected. This is not unlike people elsewhere in the world, but Americans are are actually more pro-immigration than most people around the world because we have such a long template and such a well established template for immigration. You know, for most Americans it's natural. There's a small minority, I mean a large minority of Americans that do not like immigration, but the vast majority like it. But those who won't talk about border security and won't talk about enforcement also make a huge mistake in thinking that Americans don't care about that because Americans do want to know what the rules are. We're we're a rule abiding country. We're somewhat over legalistic, perhaps even. And people do want to know that there are rules, that those rules make sense, that we're designing the rules for the best of the American people, for the economy, um, our economic future, and that we are making sure that people follow the rules. And, And that doesn't necessarily mean that people want to seal off You know the border entirely. You know the the border fence turns out to be not terribly popular. It never gets to majority support, but that doesn't mean people don't want to know that there is some attempt to to channel people through legal channels and stop people coming from other ways. And I think you know Democrats at their peril have not necessarily realized that, and Republicans at their peril, or at least the White House at at its peril, more than Republicans in general, has not necessarily. Realized how pro-immigration Americans are. You know, both sides are selectively reading what what's in the polls.
0: So I'm I'm going to ask you something I've asked other guests on the show, and that is, it, it seems to me that the core elements of an immigration deal still exist for, for exactly reasons that you just said. You know, let's do a thought experiment here, and let's say Nancy Pelosi calls up President Trump, and says, "Look." We'll give you, not only will we give you $5 billion, we'll, we'll give you $25 billion. We'll give you $50 billion, and you can build a wall as high and wide and deep as you want. But we want a process that regularizes the 11 million-plus people that are here. It's going to be lawful, and they're going to get citizenship at the other end of that. Why is that? off the table. I mean, politically, that would sort of be suicide for both sides. But it seems like that'd be about where most Americans would come down. If you could sort of guarantee a, a citizenship process for people in this country already in exchange for. Now, the answer I usually hear is like from Republicans, well, we tried that before and we got taken. We, we got more immigration and we got a regular path or amnesty, but we didn't get border security. Is there even a possibility, do you think, let's say before 2020, that President Trump wakes up and goes, hey, okay, sounds good. Thanks, Nancy. I'll take my twenty-five billion, and you get your path to citizenship. It's possible. I, th- I think it's hard because I think <laughs> and trust... a meteor crashing into the Earth is possible, as right? Well, exactly. I... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think that's the chances. <laughs>
1: okay. No, I, look. I think it's more possible than a meteoric crashing. Um, less than uh, you know, probably a few other things we could think of. I think it's hard, um, and it's hard because there isn't trust on on both sides here, and and so I think it's going to take longer than two years to get there. I think it would take into a second Trump presidency or into a new a new presidency after 2020 for you know both sides to to be able to sit down and negotiate i you know there's a lot that both sides are going to be playing to their base for the next two years on this and, and we'll be distrusting each other. But yeah, there is a deal. And the, I mean, the, the, the outlines of the deal have always been there, right? Which is we need a system that is more based, visas going forward are a little more based on employment, right? Right now, it's overwhelming a system based on families, right? So a little more, you know, for people coming, for meeting employment needs in the United States, we've got to figure out what President Trump calls merit. We've got to figure out what merit is. Is it just high skilled or is it also low skilled and middle skilled? So we've got to figure out that basket. we got to figure out what we do with the people, 11 million people here, you know, illegally in this country, you know, who gets to come out of the shadows, do they get citizenship or not, or a really long pathway to citizenship, or, or just residency, but no citizenship. Um, border security, you know, do you build a wall everywhere, or do you do a basket where you upgrade, you know, ports of entry, as well as use technology and fencing on the border, you know, maybe more complete set, as well as do some, perhaps some worksite enforcement as well. You know, so I think there's a lot of things, and then you got to figure out refugees and asylum. You know, how do you update our asylum system? What do we think about in terms of refugees? That's always been a calling card of the United States. So there's a, a set of baskets we need to figure out. The outlines have always been there. I think most reasonable people, if you put them in a room, could come out with a way of doing this. But politically, it may be hard for the next couple of years. But look, if we can get to the end of this shutdown. You know, we're in the middle of the shutdown here. If they come up with some sort of smaller deal that maybe is DACA, temporary protected status, and wall, maybe that cr- begins to create some confidence. You know, whatever that mini deal looks like maybe starts creating confidence. And look, President Trump put out the idea of of having weekly immigration meetings. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. But, but if there are a couple summits with the president about this where everyone sits down – before 2020, we might, you know, after 2020, maybe we get there where there's a, you know, the beginnings of an outline that all, every side can live with.
0: So, Andrew, that sounds very, very reasonable. So do I detect the beginning of an Andrew Seeley for Congress uh, platform <laughs> Definitely here? Definitely not. <laughs> but you're going you're gonna to fund from the proceeds of your book. So you, you you know, you won't
1: even have to raise money. <laughs> That's how we know that this is not going to go very far. So <laughs> I think our, our hope is, you know, at least at, at Migration Policy Institute, our hope is to inject some practical ideas into the discussion on both sides. And, and hope that over the next couple of years, you know, between the next two to three years, we're able to get to a place where reasonable people can sit in the same room and say, this is the outline of what we can live with and then begin to fill it in and and, and have data behind it that that uh, show what this would do for the economy and what it would do for, for communities.
0: Well, this is a very good report that you've just put out, right, Andrew, and we're big fans of MPI's work over here. Uh, so commend you for that. Um, Looking well, forward to, you, you know, uh, seeing more of your work. Um, and look forward to having you back on the show again. And then you will have bragging rights over Chris Sands.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Great to be on 35 West. And Richard, thanks for having me back. Thanks, Andrew.
0: Thank you for listening to 35 West. Please tune in next week for a new episode and make sure to subscribe to 35 West on iTunes and SoundCloud.